I'm here trying to, to find time to write a new book on um, or do European governments engage in strategic thinking? Do they understand what that is? Do they think about deterrence in this day and age, about effective coercion, about the political effects of the use of force in the three forms, including the actual use of force in operations. Uh, so I'm very interested in this, um, this topic, especially now that the Americans are going to Asia much more, cutting their defense budgets, uh, looking to Europe to finally take care of its own security needs. So Europe is home alone. Uh, as this film was named, where the little boy was home alone over Christmas and the neighborhood was pretty tough. And um, I think that's the same. In Europe, the neighborhood is tough. Uh, it is the Balkans uh, not so very stable, although EU membership may work the trick for the Balkans, NATO membership coming in tow. But we have uh, the Maghreb, the Arab winter, so to speak, uh, strategic terrorism emerging from, from the Maghreb, also Central Asia and the Caucasus, and Russia being much more, uh, behaving much more like a traditional realpolitik great power. Uh, so in a way, the Middle East, Maghreb, Caucasus, with its many frozen and not so frozen conflicts, uh, there are plenty of issues in Europe um, that should concern European politicians. So what I plan to do is to write about what, what would be a strategy given today's uh, risks and threats uh, and what do we see empirically in France, Germany and, and uh, Britain uh, mostly uh, in terms of strategic thinking. So obviously it's interesting to be here in, in Britain where there is a security council and so on. Uh, that work that I've just started will build on this book, which uh, I will talk about today. It's just published. We can hand it around. That's an anthology about eight NATO allies in Europe, not picked for any very scientific reason, apart from uh, it including uh, the major states, Germany, France, Britain, the uh, sort of second category, Poland, Spain, and then two small countries of the Nordics, Norway, Denmark, and Hungary, also a small country of the Eastern Central Europe. And in that book, we take Robert Gates' criticism uh, of NATO. As you know, when he left office, politicians are more interesting when they leave office quite often than when they're in office, because he spoke very frankly about the need for Europe to uh, be willing to take risk, carry the cost, uh, finally, in a way, taking care of their own security, not rely on the U.S. And the U.S., as you know, stands for 77% of NATO expenditure. So the combined Europe is 23%. So clearly, NATO uh, today is, uh, as it has always been, extremely dependent on the U.S. So what happens when the U.S. is no longer uh, prodding Europeans to contribute uh, and when the U.S. is no longer willing to lead, saying these are conflicts in your vicinity, you have to deal with this yourself. So what are the assumptions um, we make or should make? We can discuss this uh, later. Limited war is, of course, not the exception. It is the rule for warfare. Hugh Strawn uh, makes the point that first the First World War was started as a limited war, trying to quell anarchism, the terrorism of that time, in Serbia. So it started as a limited war, and one expected it to last for three weeks or four weeks in August, and then uh, it lasted for four years. 
And he also makes the point that World War II was not a total war at the time, but it started with several bilateral interstate, interstate wars. But, of course, uh, these wars developed into being existential and total. And the Cold War also was existential and total. Uh, the nuclear, the danger of nuclear Armageddon. So our mental frame is sort of set by this experience of existential, that war means nothing or everything in a way, that uh, war is extremely serious, existential. And most of the time, historically, it hasn't been, and today it isn't. So one issue is how politicians will uh, deal with this when there are security issues that must be addressed, even militarily, but they are not existential in the sense. So we see this in Afghanistan and Libya, certainly, but in the Balkans and so on. One could say no European state would have been threatened had nothing been done in Bosnia or Kosovo even, but it would have been a nuisance and so on, but why not, in a way, let... Uh, they, one could have chosen Ed Lutwak's uh, uh, infamous title of an article, Give War a Chance. So let them fight it out. Uh, so today, politicians, sign away. Uh, they have to engage publics for, the, for causes of war that are not existential. So it's a big question whether that is possible. Uh, so we ask, uh, in which states in Europe do we see... Uh, in a way, the ability for governments to wage wars that are non-existential, that are limited. And what happens to domestic political factors when this is not uh, the case? And we see that in some states there is a strong military culture by history, tradition. France is the foremost example, where it is fully possible for governments to think strategically and to act strategically and to have public support. In other states, this relationship is changing. Here in Britain, it's certainly also changing. Uh, the two main military cultures of Europe. Uh, so uh, what is needed in, these, um, in any kind of war fighting today, be it from the air, where there's less risk, but if you have uh, forces on the ground, always a lot of risk, you have to have risk-willing relevant military capability. You can't have mobilization forces. Uh, you have to uh, have professional, pro professional forces that can go anywhere on the globe quickly. Uh, so you have to be at a high level of both readiness, professionalism. So Gates made the point that there are few states that have these kinds of capabilities today. Uh, and typically the, the states that haven't modernized since the Cold War that place little emphasis on security and defense will not have that types of forces. And it is techno technology, everything from drones to, uh, uh, you know, it's all the sort of precision guided missiles and so on, special forces, intelligence, uh, and, and the ability to penetrate uh, an area with not with large tanks or troops, but with smaller, quicker forces. Uh, so the other uh, political willingness is one thing, but in military affairs you have, to have, you have to have the hardware, you have to have the capability. If you don't have that, you may be extremely willing, but you are not very useful. So uh, one country that is very willing but not very able is Hungary in this, uh, because they can't afford 
to do what they would like to do. So we have the chief of defense of Norway who wrote this chapter on military capability because in Europe uh, one problem may be sort of postmodern politics and the unused sort of the, the lack of willingness to take risk. Another one is that uh, military budgets are declining, 8% in this country last year, which is quite remarkable. But everywhere declining, and uh, we reached a point of critical mass, which means that if you have two tanks, you might as well have none, or two submarines, no use. You must have at least six to be able to service them, train, and so on. So European states are reaching this point of, uh, uh, of critical mass uh, very quickly for a number of capabilities. So this is a, a huge problem that politicians are not willing to deal with because uh, it touches on sovereignty. Should Denmark has abolished its submarine fleet, it was too costly and they thought it wasn't necessary really. Norway cannot do the same because of the Barents Sea and, and Russia. So if we, if we don't invest in new submarines, we, uh, we are severely handicapped on intelligence. So uh, there is very little that is done in Europe to address this issue, to say maybe you Dutch should have that capacity and the Belgians this. I know there is cooperation. And even the biggest powers, France and Britain, are cooperating for cost reasons now, on the, even on the nuclear uh, capability, although they don't intend to share, uh, share the nuclear, uh, nuclear arms, but they intend to to share cost on maintenance and so on. So there is a, a very special situation that uh, the cost of military procurement is very high compared to the civilian sector because this, this is not a market. Uh, and there is this uh, feeling after 1990 that we are in a deep peace that will be perpetual. Som evigen frieden of Immanuel Kant. And then we see China rising, and the world is now economically multipolar, but, uh, and, and uh, we know of no examples of great powers economically that haven't also armed themselves, spent on, uh, on arms, and this happens now in China and in Russia. If you look at the military balance, this, this book, you see that China and Russia are up to 10% per year uh, increase in their military budgets. And we see that China clearly has regional ambitions uh, of uh, hegemony in the South China Sea. And we see that Russia speaks about spheres of interest. And uh, clearly, um, the Russian defense minister was in Finland two, two weeks ago, warning the Finns not to think of NATO membership, very explicitly, saying if you think that NATO, NATO shouldn't expand farther east, uh, that would not uh, be uh, commensurate with our sphere of interest. So in this situation, it's uh, interesting to look at what we know about alliance dependence. And, you know, this is a term from Glenn Snyder's 1984 article. Uh, alliance dependence uh, comes uh, with the dilemma of entrapment and abandonment. Uh, you risk being entrapped with the U.S., going around the world to, to various war zones. Uh, but if you don't contribute, you risk being abandoned. And in NATO today, we have... Uh, it's a co NATO today is a coalition platform uh, for alliance, various types of alliances, I would say. 
So it all revolves around the US in the middle and then the UK, possibly France, and smaller countries, the Dutch, the Norwegians, the Danes, uh, rotating towards that inner circle and the Poles and so on. And, uh, and the currency of being accepted in the inner circle is risk-willing military capability. Uh, and in the scholarly literature, we know that there is uh, a very strong pull, very strong explanatory um, variable in this uh, alliance dependence. Uh, the Danes, uh, Lasse Ringsmose has looked at Denmark, how the Danes contribute whatever the US goes uh, because the Danes want access in Washington, not because the Danes feel threatened. The Norwegians contribute wherever the US goes because we may feel threatened by Russia, so we have a geopolitical uh, calculus at the bottom, keep NATO relevant at almost whatever cost. And so it goes from country to country. The Eastern Europeans uh, are concerned about Russia in the old-fashioned manner, as we are, so to speak. But uh, the result of all this is that uh, to contribute uh, because of uh, an interest in being close to the US explains a lot. And then also for us, the Brits, uh, when the Brits ask us to contribute, we we say yes, we, have, we sort of shadow British foreign policy. We've done so in Norway since uh, World War II when, when the government was sitting here in London, sitting in London. King was here. We even applied for Commonwealth membership in 1953. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we followed Britain applying for EU membership in 60, 62, 67, 72 the first two times de Gaulle said no. So there is, uh, the point is that the not only realist explanations of alliance dependence are valid or interesting, but also general foreign policy uh, explanations. So the big question then is what happens when the US will no longer beckon? If the US does not come and say, what's your contribution here? Uh, will we follow Britain or will other Euro- NATO, with NATO allies in Europe follow the lead of Britain, France? In Libya, some did, but only eight countries uh, were involved. And then there is this um, question of domestic pressure. Alliance dependence in the Cold War explained very well, uh, as lo- or the, the alliance dependence held very well. Uh, as long as parties were in agreement that security and defence is up here, much more important than domestic politics. Uh, Sarah Krebs has written a, a study of ISAF where she says, yes, alliance dependence holds also for ISAF contributions. Uh, all the uh, NATO members continued to contribute, even though public opinion uh, was more than 50% against uh, the ISAF operation. But this holds only as long as parties have this tacit understanding that security and defense is beyond party politics. Once they start to defect and profit uh, from the dissatisfaction in public opinion, it unravels. One case of that was uh, German Schröder when he uh, used the opposition to Iraq as a way of getting re-elected. Another case we talk about is Norwegian left socialists who are currently in the government who stopped special forces to Afghanistan on two occasions. And that troubled the Labour Party, its partner, so much that they hurried to contribute a lot to Libya 
and we were in the sort of inner circle of bombing sorties with France and Britain over Libya. So one has redressed the balance in a way. But the large question is here really, if there is not this US reminder all the time of, uh, of the importance of NATO and what is expected of you, uh, the temptation for parties in individual countries is to use to say we must follow public opinion on this. We cannot, uh, especially if, if one cannot argue that there are existential threats that are addressed with the use of force. So that makes it uh, very, very uncertain how uh, NATO will develop and how NATO's European allies, will they have any kind of uh, ability to, to be allied together. Uh, and I think ISAF uh, is so interesting because it, it showed how unjust burden sharing became in terms of risk and casualty. And that, uh, that led to quite open criticism of some countries that were just token, with token presence and those that fought in the south. So Canada, for instance, uh, complained about losses uh, and Denmark and so on. Uh, and, and clearly one cannot really think of uh, another sustained operation with this inequality. So in a way... If burden sharing is so in, unequal, then one cannot really think of NATO being uh, an alliance doing operations that are non-existential, Article 4, voluntary, so to speak. So this is uh, interesting. Uh, will there be, in a way, any other NATO operations going on, or will it be like the Libya, UK, or France determined to do Libya, for its own strategic reasons. We're just publishing a study of this in Norwegian, by the way, in later in June. The UK followed in tow because Cameron was um, uh, convinced that he wanted to do this with France for humanitarian reasons. All his advisors were against it, by the way. Uh, and then some few others followed. Germany voted, abstained on the UN resolution on Libya, which is interesting because uh, thereby it voted with Russia and China on that, on that uh, resolution. So there was a, a great sort of only a NATO operation after the US had said we must get NATO involved here. We can't have this thing outside of NATO. So that's the sort of will, will anything happen in European NATO uh, in the time ahead, or will it be France that says, okay, you UK, come with us, maybe some others are interested, probably not many. And then, uh, if Europe has real security and defence challenges, which I would argue it has, who will think about those? And that's where deterrence is interesting, because is there any willingness to say, these are the red lines. Maybe one shouldn't talk about red lines after Obama has said red line on Syria, sort of. Did you see the cartoon in the Hell Tribune or New York Times? So this is the red line. This is really, really the red line. This is really, really, really the red line. And now we had Sarin Gas uh, proved uh, from France and the UK yesterday, which makes it uh, even more difficult to, to uh, talk about any red lines. So I don't think politicians uh, are going to be keen to say the buck stops here, but uh, it's very important uh, to be firm with countries like China and Russia and so on. Our experience with Russia is that they only respect you if you are tough, 
if you are willing to to uh, use hard power to I mean all the soft talk is just uh, a sign of weakness so we, we have this uh, realpolitik uh, great power stuff coming back so that's interesting and in this book um, uh, we don't go into this lack of strategic logic which I hope to do in my next book but this is uh, sort of under the surface uh, and we ask you know the, these are just a rundown of the chapters uh, Magnus Pettersson, military historian from Sweden, he says, well, look at who has used force. Uh, historically, it's the Europeans. Yes, that's a point Kissinger has made <laughs> in diplomacy. Uh, and he says, well, we, we have French-German, uh, no, French-British uh, uh, cooperation on a, a prior, prior war in, in uh, Suez, of course, when the Americans uh, had to crack down on both countries. Uh, we have the British in the Falklands. That was uh, Maggie Thatcher who decided on her own, uh, really, with the advice of an admiral. And I think the chief of defence staff was at, uh, at the time being in New Zealand. So Maggie made a decision sort of on the spur of the moment, historically. And as it happened, it was a good decision from the point of view of retaining popularity, at least. Uh, Bosnia and so on. So Europeans, particularly the French-British, uh, are used to being using uh, coercion and using power, and ha- they both have a global ambition, want to retain it, and uh, Britain will probably also renew the trident. So the importance they attach to having nuclear forces and the UN security. Sort of this is the, these are the symbols uh, also of great power politics. <coughs> so in a way, uh, it's uh, much hinges on France and Britain. Christopher Coker has probably written the most interesting chapter. He is uh, difficult to read because he always writes with great sophistication uh, and draws on literature and in uh, on science fiction and films and so on. Uh, but he uh, he is very pessimistic. He says that the Europeans uh, think that. Uh, hard power military force is a sort of thing of, of the past really. They have a postmodern mentality in that sense that there are no national interests, there is nothing uh, worth uh, fighting for and as long as you don't have existential threats um, people don't understand how you can be stupid enough to risk anything in, in, in wars and he thinks that uh, this is a cultural thing in Europe. It's not politicians or uh, public opinion, but it is a cultural change of the European citizen away from the traditional uh, citizen of a nation-state with clear national interests and so on to the postmodern European project, uh, where it is, in a way, politically so incorrect as, as can be to uh, talk about strategy, to, uh, to deter, to threaten. It must be illegal to threaten anybody, and probably is according to international law. So he is very pessimistic. He says there's no chance of, of strategic action, only reactive action. Sven Diesen, the general from Norway, chief of defense uh, staff, says that, okay, you know, you politicians may think of many things, but do you have the tools? Uh, and he says that um, even Libya, a small, easy operation from the air, uh, showed that Europeans lack major capabilities. We couldn't, or France, Britain couldn't have 
done Libya without American capabilities. Uh, Air-to-air refueling, uh, these attack helicopters that go low, uh, intelligence, um, many, um, even ammunitions uh, were were short at some point. And this was a a seven-month operation. So, so he says that, you know, don't fool yourselves. You, you are out of the military business in Europe unless you spend more and you are spending less. And the critical mass is just a process that goes on and on uh, without any political attention, really. So one, it's so unpleasant to face up to it that nobody wants to face up to it. And then it's too late when you discover, in a way, that you're that you're not able to do so much. But then one could say that, well, the Russians are not very sophisticated. We are much more sophisticated. Uh, NATO then, which is, which, which is special in the sense that it has the common, uh, the common military structure, the command structure. NATO is without a political vision or strategic vision. NATO uh, is, in a way, uh, a mechanism for U.S. leadership. If the U.S. doesn't use NATO, will anybody? France uh, just published a Livre Blanc de Défense uh, now in April, which has a very good sectional strategy, uh, and it says we will continue to be in the military com- command structure of NATO. We will use NATO, we will cooperate with the British, and we will await the opportune time for relaunching EU and EU military sort of uh, security and defense uh, policy. And the French, you know, the, I wrote a book about European, the EU and security and defense, and it was French-British-led from Saint-Malo. It has sort of just uh, been put on the back burner because uh, the British have not been interested in using the EU battle groups, and now the French are in NATO, so the Brits, of course, want to use NATO much more. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's very much intergovernmental. But in a way, uh, can there be any kind of planning for any uh, security and defense policy in Europe if there is no common uh, vision, if there is no uh, co- um, common policy vision? Sean Kay, uh, an American uh, scholar who is very much a central figure in NATO studies in in the US says that this time it's serious you have heard the crisis in NATO that has been the theme Uh, Henry Kissinger has the world record in talking about crisis in NATO for six six decades now it is a real crisis of NATO Uh, he says because uh, now the Europeans must face up to dealing with much more itself Patrick Porter, who is an army officer turned academic, as many are in this country, he is at Reading. Uh, He says that there is the political will, but there isn't now the capability. Uh, And as you know, the British British army is cutting cutting down severely, uh, but there will be a French-British brigade by 2016 that can be deployed uh, anywhere. So both France and Britain have to cut down, and the French are also cutting their budget, not so much as the British. So they are bound to integrate much more if they are going to maintain a global status. And I think therein lies the interesting uh, prospect for Europe, that the French and British have to 
lock, lock themselves together and that, that will also make it imperative to have much more, much more a common view of uh, security, common strategic vision. And we see that Hollande, uh, despite being a socialist uh, ideology, does not figure, figure very much. Yves Boyer, who is one of the major strategic thinkers in France, uh, and they are quite serious about strategy, he says that the, the French uh, have managed to design a system whereby the um, uh, institutions of defense and strategic planning are insulated from public opinion and insulated from ideology. So Hollande, being socialist, that will not have much of an impact at all. And we saw that the only popular thing that Hollande has done is to go to Mali. <laughs> that brought him 76% support in public opinion. So France is sort of the odd man out in Europe. Most other countries, you don't get popular if you, if you go to war. And uh, in French, France, you do. Uh, so France is the sort of the, mo the locomotive, if there is one. Germany is the null hypothesis. Uh, of course, uh, Benjamin Schreer has uh, safely placed himself in Australia. He's an eminent uh, uh, analyst of, of German pacifism, one could say, and he just uh, took a job in Australia. He has written uh, a lot on the lack of military culture in Germany. Uh, and Germany, uh, interestingly enough, and he makes this point, now Germany is so powerful that it can have its own it's coming into being again as a great power economically. And it is so powerful that it can say, we are just not interested in these security and defense things. They don't suit us. We, we will not be active in NATO. We will never lead any operation. In the EU, they couldn't deploy their battle group to Africa uh, for, it was a Kinshasa election. Uh, stabilization or secure, security of an election in 2006 and Merkel had great problems deploying the uh, battle group of Germany which was on rotation at that time because uh, of op opposition to go to Germany, so no go to Africa. So you know this sort of these problems that the Germans have uh, they make uh, reliance on German contributions very very difficult as it was, they solved this by the French doing the job in Kinshasa and Potsdam, the headquarters, being uh, pro forma allowed to command the operation. So that was just a sort of not law. So we will see that Germany is probably saying, we, for, for us, we don't want to get into, we can be in stabilization operations, we will not do war fighting, we will not uh, threaten the use of force or this is not our, we are a different kind of nation. And I think the, this, of course, weakens NATO Europe tremendously because the Germans have the money that the others don't. So this is what Schreer's chapter says. Spain is very much of a pacifistic nation as well. After, after Franco, uh, the military forces have been associated very much with his legacy there is no status for an officer in being an officer in, in Spain. It used to be the place where you could learn to read and write, going to the army in the old days. And we see that ideology plays a big role in countries without a military culture like Spain. If you recall in, in the um, attack in Madrid, the terrorist attacks on Madrid was 2004, I think. 
they were uh, announced, or there was a terrorist website which we can identify, one of the few cases where we can almost see cause and effect, terrorist uh, website uh, urging uh, action in Spain and or in Britain, because they had elections here at the same time. Uh, to get, in order to get um, uh, troops out of Iraq. So it said, if, you, if we get socialists uh, in office in Spain, they most certainly will withdraw from Iraq. So sort of, we urge you to attack uh, Spain. Uh, and that's what happened. Uh, Zapatero was elected a week after the attacks uh, on Madrid, and Zapatero withdrew troops from uh, Iraq. So this is um, so we see that ideology. Asnar was the sort of we do anything for Washington guy. So he was contributing with uh, with uh, uh, Berlusconi, if you remember, to the Iraq War. So we can see that Spain is a reluctant ally, not sort of relevant very much, but um, uh, a conservative prime minister may contribute for political reasons. Poland is um, very much motivated by traditional alliance dependence, uh, a la Jack Snyder, uh, keep the Americans in, keep the Russians out. And therefore, Poland didn't do anything in Libya, uh, something which Gates pointed out. Poland, you should have done something, contributed in Libya. Uh, but for them, that was just French-British operation. Hungary, as I said, is politically willing, uh, interested, and so on, but it has no money. Uh, it really cannot afford. It has now the lowest budget for uh, budget for defense in all of Europe. I was in Budapest uh, last weekend, talked with the people there, and there's 0.8% of the GDP to defense. And most countries are below 2%. France, Britain are above uh, but uh, Hungary is just, uh, you know, there's no, there's no money for, uh, for doing anything. Denmark uh, is an example of a country that has changed its strategic culture or military culture from being a footnote country in NATO, which it was in the 80s, to being extremely proactive. And that's why it has the NATO sec gen as well. Uh, and that was done by two politicians, Hans Heckerup and um, a socialist. They saw that Denmark was sort of always marginalized, falling behind and so on. So Denmark is now, since 1990, willing and able. And they are always there. We say that the Danes are there before, nobody, before anybody else. <laughs> they, were in, they were in Crete going to Syria before the French started the bombing, in a way. So Danes, uh, my son is a military officer, and when they did the military school in Norway, they read a Danish book. And the Danish language is very soft. It sounds like you know, you're, it sounds like you're speaking about love all the time because it's so nice to listen to. And this book is entitled "Imorn Angriver Vigen." Tomorrow we will attack you again. Wow, tough title, but it sounds very sweet. So they read this: how the Danes were in helmet always even figuring out a way to uh, deal with the Taliban road bombs because they would detect an IED. Then the Danes would just sit there ambushing the Taliban when they came to check on the bomb. So they would sort of do exactly to the Taliban what the Taliban planned to do to them. They would attack them and kill them there by the roadside bomb. So the Danes have changed 
and Bosnia was the wake-up call for the Danes. Uh, they were uh, attacked by Serbian forces in 94, and then they fired back 47 uh, grenades at the Serb position. And then a, a journalist asked the Danes, you know, why did you fire 47 grenades at the Serbs? He was really shocked, the journalist. And this uh, major said, because we had, didn't have any more. <laughs> we only had 47. So this was, so the Danes, that's an example of how a political will can change uh, a culture. Norway uh, is, uh, as I said, in this group of traditional NATO members. We fear Russian uh, being lent on by the Russians, Russian meddling. Uh, we are very, very interested in keeping uh, the U.S. interested in NATO. So we are contributing because we think it's, uh, ne it's necessary. But we have uh, some examples of later years of how domestic political parties' ideology uh, have impinged on contributions, and that's why we also hurried to contribute to uh, Libya so much. Um, so we could say what we find is that the there exists a military strategic culture in France, UK, Denmark, Norway, none in Germany, none in Italy. We don't have Italy here, but that's another case. None in Spain. In the Netherlands, which we don't have in the study, there is the clearly a, a military culture and a risk-willing capability. Uh, Belgium, I think, uh, is, is not rather nondescript and so on. Uh, so we see that uh, Europe varies a lot. And we see that where there's a weak military culture, political ideology matters a lot. There, you know, the government's uh, color matters. Uh, and for all countries, uh, alliance dependence is highly important. If you look at Britain, it's the special relationship. If you've seen this film in the loop, you will know how funny this can be. Uh, and it's the special relationship. Blair contributed to Iraq because of the special relationship and this goes on and on and we in Norway have a small special relationship in Washington, we, we do the same. So the big question is if the US says you must deal with this yourselves, what will we do in Europe? Will it be like Harold Macmillan said when, when asked what drives security and defense policy? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. Or will there be any ability to think strategically in Europe? And of course, the, the brilliant, the beautiful point about military forces is that if you don't use it, it's at the best, it's the best effect. Uh, if you deter others from uh, using military force against you, uh, then you have maximum effect of the military tool. And if you have to use it, you sh if you can coerce somebody to change their will, which is Clausewitz's uh, point about the end of, of using force, without using force, then that is really uh, also commendable. That is a good effect. And if you have to use military force, you have the friction, the fog of war, the unintended consequences, the, all the interplay that you don't really control very much. So then you end up very often in a situation like in Afghanistan where the war determines the political goals and not vice versa. It's very hard. All evidence shows that it's very, very hard to have a strategic political direction to any kind of war that lasts for many years. 
it becomes uh, almost impossible. Uh, so this is, in, in a way, the interesting thing. Uh, is If one is simply a reactive, one will get into new wars, because nobody predicted Libya, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Kosovo, all these wars we have been in, uh, all limited, but nobody predicted that that would happen. Nobody would ever think that Norwegian soldiers would fight and die in Afghanistan. So these events will continue to happen. You know, Syria may be, may be next if it gets much worse, but it may not be next because it gets much worse. I mean, it's a very open question. But what is, I think, certain is that European forces will be sort of by events driven to deploy again. But if one could coerce or deter, if one could at least have a strategy, then one could manage the sort of uh, wildness of events maybe in a better way because strategy is not linear it's not to say this is the goal here are the means that's how we do it it is interactive so it is filled with uncertainty and change as as a concept okay so the only ones that are able to to lead in this kind of direction would be french british in tandem and uh, I think uh, the, the Livre Blanc de Défense is interesting because it is very, it has a very good strategic analysis. Uh, and both the Brits and the French see that the partnership with the, between them is, is a necessity. And uh, I would just end on this note saying that now the British and the French are the ones that take a lead on Syria more so than Obama, who is very eager to, to avoid all situations of hard, tough foreign policy, I think, and certainly the use of force in any way.